0: In the book that uh, a book group on Zoom has been uh, exploring together, uh, Encounters with Jesus by Tim Keller, he, he quotes the, the renowned author David Foster Wallace, who several years ago gave a, um, the, the commencement speech at Kenyon College. Here's what David Foster Wallace, not at all a Christ follower, said. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you look for meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and you'll never. Uh, oh, and you will need more and more, greater and greater power to numb your own fear of loss of power. If you worship your, your intellect being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid a fraud and always afraid of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, but that they are unconscious. They are our default settings. That's pretty insightful for someone who's not a Christ follower. Now here's the tragedy, two years after giving this speech, David Foster Wallace committed suicide. See, he had these insights, but, but somehow he didn't break through, and he was still worshiping whatever it was, and it was empty. Hello, and welcome to the FBC Sermon Podcast. Today's sermon is titled, The Seduction of Success Part 2, and was based on 2 Kings 5, 1-15. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. A meeting of power brokers took place at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago in 1923. Now, this was a behind-the-scenes meeting that the media didn't know about. Eight of the most powerful people in the United States gathered together. to Talk about how to expand the economy. Here's who those eight people were the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, the most successful investor on Wall Street, the CEO of the largest corporation in the United States at that time, the CEO of the largest steel company at that time, the CEO of the largest gas company at that time, the CFO of the biggest agricultural corporation in the country, and the chair of the International Bank of Settlements. These were some of the most successful people in the country and maybe in the world of their generation. And they gathered together for this meeting. But what's tragic is how each of them died. Three of them died by suicide. Two of them died in prison. One died in a mental institution. And one became a fugitive who was never caught. See, what happened was these were people who were seduced by success. And they fed the success idol. And every time we feed the idols of our culture that are evoked in in our hearts, whenever we feed them, they demand greater and greater sacrifices. But then they ultimately don't deliver what they promise. Oh, they may give us a quick fix. But then that becomes empty. Empty. And so they were feeding the idol of success and they became vulnerable because rather than stewarding success, success can be beautiful when we steward it, instead of stewarding it, it became their life, it became like their God, it became their deity, they became vulnerable, the Great Depression came, the bottom fell out and there was nothing left because the idol didn't deliver. And we can feel pressure, can't we? It might not be on that grand of a global scale, but maybe it's that... Our parents, well-meaning, have such hopes for our education and, and that will land that job that, that we feel just absolutely almost kind of stifled by those expectations. Or, or maybe it's because of our need for approval. The, there's this hole in our heart longing to be loved, and so uh, we'll end up doing almost whatever it takes in order to have approval in a social circle, or maybe it's our career advancement. And what started out as something that was exciting has now actually become something that we just can't feed the idol enough to feel successful enough. Or when we get to those places, we realize they really didn't deliver what we were most hoping for. So this morning's message is The Seduction of Success. We're in our Habits of the Heart sermon series. We're we're devoting about 10 weeks um, to... Identify some of the idols in our culture today because we often think about idols as these ancient statues that these primitive peoples bowed down to. But the idols of our culture are more seductive because we usually don't know when we've entered into their temples and when we're bowing down to them. And today we look at the idol of success. Will you join me in 2 Kings chapter 5? Now, for those who are in the house, that's on page 362 of the Blue Bibles or in your own device. 2 Kings chapter 5, for those of you who are online, we're one church, many locations in the house and in homes, cafes, bedrooms, sitting in bed, comfortable, sitting at, uh, in the living room, uh, at the dining table. Uh, cue up your, your device or in your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to meet a guy named Naaman. In verse 10. Naaman was, I'm sorry, verse 1. Naaman was the commander of the army of Aram, which is Syria. Aram was an ancient name for Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. And he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Naaman was a Syrian general, he was a field marshal. And he had, for his generation, he had it all. He had wealth. He had power as an ancient field marshal. He had connections to the right people, the king. He had a reputation. You might say especially after his most recent victory, he, he would have gone viral, all right? This is a guy who in his generation had it all. But by the way, the readers in Israel hearing this would have hated him. And they would have just been waiting. And that's like, oh yes, he had leprosy. See, for the Hebrew people, he's still an outsider. And so we read that that he had leprosy. Leprosy, as described in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, is actually a a myriad of different uh, diseases that really uh, would lead to crippling of the limbs, the disfiguring of the face, and finally a slow and anguishing death. It was a horrible disease. And here's one thing we learn. See, Naaman had it all, but you know, we can't manufacture a perfect life, can we? We can't manufacture the good life. Oh, we can do a lot of things to, to help to stoke, you know, living a fruitful and meaningful life. But just then the leprosies of our generation come when we least expect them. Don't so we, we can't manufacture the perfect life. There's always going to be something, isn't there, that's going to come into our lives. And here's the question, where will we turn when the bottom falls out? And are we prepared? Are we preparing ourselves today for that time when it seems like we take the elevator into the basement of life? See, someday we'll wake to the illusion of self-sufficiency and it'll be things that the world can't fixed. Naaman had all the resources of his generation, but now he has no hope. Oh, but now let's move down to verse 2. So a band of raiders from Aram, meaning Syria, had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he could cure him of his leprosy. Here we see Naaman's hubris. Because, see, Success can be good. This isn't an anti-success. Success can be good when we steward that success. That's beautiful. Matter of fact, that's what Jesus did. Jesus had more influence than anyone in the world. And he laid it down and he stewarded it for the world. See, when we steward success, it's beautiful. But when success leads to our hubris, when it becomes an idol and we continue feeding it, it can warp our character beyond ways that we ever could have imagined. And so Naaman, in his hubris, he, he leads this raid into Israel, and he brings home a gift for his wife. And the gift is a little human girl who he's trafficked and brought home. Now before we go, Naaman, how could you do that? I, I, I want us to think, could there be policies in our country or in the world and systems that are enslaving people today that it's easy for us to turn a blind eye to? Could some of the purchases that we make actually be supporting enslaving people in in poverty? Let me give you a dream of mine. Now, in this dream, Bill Gates passes away and he gives to Greg Moselle his vast wealth. Now you know it's a dream, okay? He gives me the vast wealth. Now what am I going to do with all of this? Okay, so I opened Justice Mart. And Justice Mart would open like close to every Walmart and Target and Costco and Kmart and everything else like that. And Justice Mart will be a place where you walk in, you probably have to pay 8, 10, 12% more. But you know, everything you purchase is fair trade. Everything that you purchase has a supply chain with a livable income that, that, that stewards the planet that means that that every step along the way, every purchase that we make, we know it's helping to build people up and not tear people down. Wouldn't Justice Mark be awesome? Yeah. And so I think it's easy for us to say to Naaman, "No, oh, Naaman, how could you do that? Which which we should say, but, but, but let's also remember that in more subtle ways, we need to be in careful about people who are in effect enslaved. Maybe in our own country where there's Not access to decent education. Where it's so over-policed that people live in fear. Or where there's no healthy food. And then in our world that's filled with such incredible needs. Even as we think of Ukraine today. And yet Ukraine is all over in the news, which it should be. And people are rallying to rescue. But when Syria had the same issues. It didn't seem like the world responded quite as much. And so here's this slave girl, but here's what's amazing. She becomes the hero of the story. See, here's this little slave girl, and she says, you know what, if, if you go see the prophet in Israel, I mean, you've got your prophets and your deities here, but, but I, I know the true and the living God. And I know a prophet who can cure you. Isn't that amazing? What faith she has, even in the midst of such destruction in her life. And she really becomes the hero. That's why this is important. See, Naaman's not the hero of the story. He's profiled in the story, you know, to help us to understand something, to teach us things. But the hero is this little girl. God so often chooses the least of the least as the people who make the greatest difference in the kingdom of God. It's those who humble themselves and steward, or those who've been humbled and realize, ah, and have earned a dependence upon God that can be a conduit of God's blessing for the flourishing of all peoples. See, God looks through a very different lens than our world. And so Naaman responds, he's desperate, verse 5, so Naaman took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing, The letter he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so you can cure him of his leprosy. Naaman is so desperate that even though he's had a recent victory over Israel, and let's remember this, in the ancient world, deities were tribal. You, You had a tribal deity who you fed whatever it was. Rather, it was food or too often human sacrifices, which God strictly prohibited. And you would feed that deity so that deity would make sure that your crops flourished and you had plenty of children for your future and things like that. And so when one nation defeated another, it, it, it was a sign our deity is stronger than yours. Your deity, your God couldn't defeat ours. He's going to who he views as a defeated deity of his enemy people who he's been raiding. That's how desperate he is. Are we desperate for Jesus? I think it can be easy for us to, to have kind of a recipe of life where we have our lives and then we just take a little pinch of gospel, a little pinch of Jesus, sprinkle it in, and say, I'll, I'll let you know when I need you. Rather than really stirring into where God is at the center of our lives, which so would be a lifelong journey of learning what that really means and how we do that. Are we desperate enough to say, God... Yeah, Jesus, I humble myself. And I lay down whatever the prides of my life or my religiosity. I just say, I'm like a hungry beggar coming to You, but You love me. And You pour Your grace out to me and You call me to be Your hands and feet and voice in a damaged, broken, fractured world. And you see, Naaman is still looking to the world to cure him. Think about it. What does he do? He takes with him... Money, silver and gold, a lot of silver and gold. He takes with him status. He takes like Armani suits to the king and says, here, I have some. I have 10 sets of clothing for you in case I might influence you. And he brings with him power, a letter of recommendation from the king. And he doesn't go to the prophet, he goes to the king. See, he's still thinking, it's the resources of this world. It's my money, it's my power, it's my status. Matter of fact, An amazing scene would be when he pulls up to Elisha's humble little house in his chariot, right? See, he's still thinking success, money, power, that's what's going to heal me. And so, look what, notice how the king of Israel responds. Verse seven. As soon as the king of Israel read, read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. Naaman still doesn't grasp who God is. Because ancient tribal deities reflected the culture in which they resided. They were an expression of, of the culture. And they fed the culture and they helped the culture to be successful. But you see, uh, and, and and so because of that, The kings controlled the priests and the prophets. They they, they, they were an extension, oftentimes, to control the people. And so Naaman goes to the king because he just assumes, well, he's the prophet's employer. And he'll tell him what to do because the king controls the religion in this land and shapes the deities. But the king panics. Why? Because... Naaman has gone to the only nation of the ancient world, the only people of the ancient world where the deity didn't serve the people. The people were called to serve the deity. See, when the God of the Bible called the Hebrew people, He, he didn't say, I'm here to bless you so you can be great and you can defeat everyone else. That's not what He says. He says, I'm going to bless you, remember? So you will be a blessing. To your name. I'm calling you to steward what I'm going to entrust to you so that you might be a blessing to your neighbors and a witness of who I am to all peoples. I'm not a tribal deity. I'm a global God of all peoples, no exceptions. And so the deities of this world are so often about blessing their nation. And even religions today can be about earning status with God. But the God of the Bible is... Not about those who will earn status, but about those who humbly come for grace from God. To be transformed and then live as grateful recipients of God's grace. And so in verse 10, Elisha finds out about it and we begin an interchange there. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would... Surely come out and stand before me and call on the name of the Lord his God, and you know wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy aren't the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of israel couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed so he turned and went off in a rage. naaman's still struggling with feeling superior. the success syndrome is still sh- he 's still feeding the idol of success, and so because of that he feels. Superior. How how come this prophet didn't come out and stand before me like my soldiers come out and stand before me? How come he's not serving me? Why doesn't he wave his hand and do that magic thing prophets do? Right? And he's also still racist. He says, Our rivers, the Jordan River, your river? No, no, we have better rivers in my place, right? But can't we be a little bit like Naaman? Where if we feel like if I'm just successful, then I'll feel validated and valued. And then I'll have life. And if we do that, we'll usually end up, whatever we achieve or not, at some point we'll end up feeling empty. Or, or if I feel like, God, I've been good. I've, I've given, I've served, I've been good. So, so you owe me, God. How come this bad thing happened? You owe me, God. And then we'll end up feeling bitter. Or we'll say, God, you want me to do that? Wash seven times in the Jordan River. God, you want me to do what? You want me to obey you? And you see, then when we struggle with that, it's the call to be humble and trust God, even though we may not fully understand God's call on this side of eternity or in this moment. In the book that uh, a book group on Zoom has been uh, exploring together, uh, Encounters with Jesus by Tim Keller, he, he quotes the the renowned author David Foster Wallace, who several years ago gave a um, the the commencement speech at Kenyon College. Here's what David Foster Wallace, not at all a Christ follower, said: Everybody worships. The only choice who we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things. If they are where you look for meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and you'll never, uh, oh, and you will need more and more, greater and greater power to numb your own fear of loss of power. If you worship your, your intellect being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always afraid of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, but that they are unconscious. They are our default settings. That's pretty insightful for someone who's not a Christ follower. Now here's the tragedy. Two years after giving this speech, David Foster Wallace committed suicide. See, he had these insights, but but somehow he didn't break through. And he was still worshiping whatever it was. and It was empty. Now how about Naaman? How's Naaman going to respond? Naaman's going to have a huge worldview transformation. Move down to verse 13. Naaman's servant said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you would have done it. How much more then? When he tells you, wash and be cleansed. So finally, Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God told him, and his flesh was restored. He was so desperate, he finally humbled himself and did what uh, on his way to Israel he never would have imagined he would have done. He finally humbles himself. He stops feeding the success idol, the superiority idol, and he humbly washes it in the Jordan, the river of his enemy people, who he looked down on and degraded? And because of it, we read he's restored. Three takeaways from this message, from this passage. Number one, God is not looking for us to be uber successful people. Oh, if we're successful, praise God. Let's steward that success in a way for the flourishing of all peoples and for the glory of God. Amen. But God is not looking for success, you know if you just be successful enough, then, then you could be approved by, by God. That, those are ancient idols. That is not the God of the Bible. Instead, He's asking us to be humbly washed like Naaman in God's grace through what Christ has done on the cross. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says, but you were washed... You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord, Jesus. Second thing is about Naaman. God's grace can even reach our enemies. God's grace can reach people who today we think are vile. We think are narcissistic. We think are filled with hubris. And here's why this is important. Because we were once enemies of God. I know it might be started. Oh, so how, how, how was church day? Well, pastor said I used to be an enemy of God. That's right. Matter of fact, in Colossians chapter 1, this is what we read. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies of God because of your evil behavior. Oh, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's body on the cross. See, this is good news for us because enemies of God and even people who we might view as enemies see, no one is outside the possibility of God's grace changing a life. Isn't that powerful? That's God's grace. And then the third takeaway from this message is the hero of the story is this little slave girl. She was a racial outsider where she was now living. She was socially marginalized. She was persecuted there because of who her God was. And she's a woman in an incredibly patriarchal society. Yet even in the midst of her suffering, she shares where hope comes from. She shares about God... To Naaman, who is then cleansed by God and goes home proclaiming, look at verse 15. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Naaman goes home an evangelist for God to Syria because this little girl was faithful even in the midst of her suffering. You know, hundreds of years later, there would be another person who would appear. And he too would suffer greatly. He would suffer growing up in poverty. He would flee as a refugee to Egypt. He would spend time with everyday common people and so the religious establishment excoriated him because of it. He would be racially profiled. He would be arrested. He was executed by the state in order to rescue our souls to reach out To us, even when we feel like the least of the least, and to rescue our souls and redeem our lives. And that's the real hero of the story, the gospel story of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what we do here at FBC, please visit our website, fbcamers.org. Also, consider subscribing to this podcast so you can get a notification when our weekly sermons are posted. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a great day.